How law enforcement officers view a victim can have a major impact on an investigation. In fact, it can make or break a case. It can be the difference between catching a killer and letting one remain free. In this episode, we'll look at the differences between the Green River Killer investigation and that of the Grim Sleeper. This is the history behind the crime. Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of the history behind the crime. I'm Erin Lasley. Yeah, so I want to apologize for the long break between episodes. My family came into town this past week and we had so much fun that I did not have time to finish up my research and record on time. So I'll try to make it up to you with some special episodes in the future. Uh, No plans yet on what those are. Two weeks ago, I received my first listener email, which simply asked, why you always hating on cops? And that's all it said. No greeting, (laughs) no conclusion, just that. I thought this would be a very appropriate time for me to address that before we get into the investigations of Lonnie Franklin Jr. and Gary Ridgway. I don't always talk trash about police. Believe it or not, I love the police. I used to be one. I've dated a few. I call a few of my friends. I have a couple in my family. Generally, when I see a police officer, I want to shake their hand, thank them, and tell them to be careful. A lot of good men and women become law enforcement officers for the right reasons. They want to help people and help keep their communities safe, and that is a tough job. There are four categories of careers that I admire the most. Teachers, nurses, military, and police. They are some of the most noblest professions that sometimes get the least amount of appreciation. When any of these people do their jobs well, it goes unnoticed most of the time. When one, just one, messes up, it can be splashed all over the news and the entire career field is punished. Here's the talking trash thing. I hold law enforcement to a very, very high standard because of the power and authority they've been given. You have to be good to be a cop. You have to be on top of it. You have to be able to keep cool in times of high stress and crisis. You have to be able to earn the public's trust day after day. For every hard encounter, you have to perform five soft encounters to show your community that you're not some asshole enforcer, but you are a first responder and that is a tough, tough job. After years on the job, some officers lose compassion and empathy for people. They become blind to people's suffering and fail to see the humanity in someone. This doesn't make the officer a bad person. It just makes them burnt out. Some are bad officers, either because that's just who they are, or they've been in a department rank with corruption, vice, and racism. That does some pretty messed up things to a person, and psychology experiments and studies have proven even the most decent person can be impacted and changed by such filth. These are the police officers ignoring the cries for error. 
firing blindly into homes during a warrant, and taking advantage of vulnerable populations for their own gains. These are the ones I want to see punished harshly and want karma and the justice system to take care of them. I also know that there are law enforcement officers out there who will stop at nothing to bring down the bad guy. When they see the body of a dead sex worker, they don't see the body of a hooker. They see a victim who deserves justice and knows that there's a killer out there that needs to be caught. These officers and investigators treat victims and their families with respect and are desperate to protect anyone else from getting hurt. These are the officers that keep toys in their cars for children and volunteer at community centers on their much needed days off. These men and women carry the burden of humanity's sickness, not because of the paycheck, but because someone has to. So if you hear me talking shit about law enforcement officer, it's because that officer messed up and needs to be held accountable for being a crap officer. If you hear me talking trash about an investigation, it's because that organization failed the community, which is what we're going to talk about today. In the last episode, we discussed, yeah, we, because I pretend at least one of you is conversing with me when I do these things. So last episode, we discussed sex workers, serial killers, the crack epidemic, and cops in LA, South Central, and Seattle. We talked a little bit about the differences and similarities of the two cities and touched very briefly on Lonnie Franklin Jr. and Gary Ridgway. Last episode was the history surrounding the crimes of Franklin and Ridgway. This episode, I want to talk about the two clowns, their victims, and the investigations. Once again, I pulled a lot of information about the Grim Sleeper investigation from Christine Pelisek's book, The Grim Sleeper, The Lost Women of South Central, and her article series in LA Weekly starting in August 2008. Also, the documentary Tales of the Grim Sleeper, which you can find on Amazon. Very raw and a must watch. For the Green River investigation, I dived deep into Anne Rule's book, Green River Running Red, and the oh so many documentaries out there. What I really loved about these two books is that they treated the victims in these two cases as victims. They were not shamed, but were treated with respect. Their professions only mattered because that's how the two killers picked their victims. Bravo for treating these victims as humans. Please remember, these women, they were someone's daughters, sisters, wives, and even mothers. Some lived very hard and very difficult lives. Some struggled with addictions while others were young and just looking for their place in the world. None of them deserved what happened to them. Let's talk about the crimes. On July 15th, 1982, two boys were riding their bikes along the banks of the Green River and discovered something odd in the water. After getting a closer look, the children recognized it as the body of a woman and ran to call police. The body was that of 16-year-old Wendy Caulfield. When police began to, you know, analyze the scene, they discovered the bodies of Marcy Chapman, Cynthia Hines, and Opal Mills. 
The victims had been found naked or in various stages of undress. They all had been strangled. More bodies would be found along the Green River until suddenly the bodies of sex workers and runaway females were discovered in other locations in the Seattle area after the Green River became infested with investigators. From 1982 to 2010, the bodies of 49 women would be discovered. Most of them died by strangulation and had been sexually assaulted, both pre- and post-mortem. Among the victims were sex workers, runaway girls, hitchhikers, and even acquaintances of the killer. On the warm evening of August 10th, 1985, Deborah Jackson, a cocktail waitress, left her home in South Central LA and never returned. Her body was discovered later dumped in an alley. She had been shot three times in the chest with a small caliber handgun. On August 12th, 1986, Henrietta Wright's body was found gagged and shot in the chest in another alley in South Central. Thomas Steele, a resident of San Diego, came up to LA to visit his sister. His body was discovered in the middle of an intersection on August 14th. He had a single gunshot wound to the head. On January 10th, 1987, the body of Barbara Ware was discovered on a trash heap in an alley. She had been shot in the chest. In April, Bernita Sparks told her mother she was going to run to the store for a pack of cigarettes. Her trash-covered body was discovered in a trash bin on April 15th. Bernita had been strangled, beaten, and shot in the chest. On the evening of Halloween, Mary Lowe left her mother's house saying she was going to a party in spite of the rain. That evening, a neighbor saw Mary get into an orange Ford Pinto with a young black man. Mary's body was discovered the next morning behind some bushes in an alley. On January 30th, 1988, the body of Lucretia Jefferson was found in an alley. She had been shot in the chest. A napkin covered her face. It had the word AIDS written on it. On September 11th, 1988, Alicia Monique Alexander told her father she was going to the liquor store and asked if he wanted anything. Monique never returned home. Her body was discovered in an alley. She had been sexually assaulted and shot in the chest. In November 1988, Anitra Washington was on her way to a friend's house when a well-groomed black man approached her and asked if she wanted a ride. She was hesitant at first, but he teased her and she decided to get into the orange Ford Pinto. After a stop at his house, the man shot Anitra, raped her, took pictures of her, then dumped her in an alley. Still alive, she made her way to a friend's house where her friend found her and called 911. Anitra survived and gave a description of the man to, the, to authorities. The killings seemed to stop until 2001. Princess Bertome was 14 and ran away from her foster home. A foster sister from a previous home told Princess to hang in there and be careful. It was a lot safer in the foster home than on the streets. Princess's body was found in an alley on March 19, 2001. She had been strangled and beaten. On July 11, 2003, Valerie McCorvey's body was found in an alley by a crossing guard. She had been sexually assaulted and beaten. On January 1, 2007, 
A homeless man found the body of Janisha Peters in a garbage bag. She had been shot to death. The press barely covered her death and labeled it as a stabbing. Both murder sprees took place in cities plagued by the crack epidemic and in areas frequented by sex workers and at-risk girls. In Seattle, many victims were picked up on the SeaTac Strip where it was easy to get a drink, a date, and a pay-by-the-hour motel room. In L.A., all the victims were picked up in South Central where most people minded their own business. The only difference is where the bodies were disposed of. In South Central, victims were simply dumped in alleys, whereas in Seattle, the victims were first disposed in or by the Green River until police and press swarmed the area and people began to discover victims not only in wilderness areas, but in urban areas around Seattle as well. The press didn't seem to care that much about South Central, so the heat was never really on. In Seattle, the press was everywhere. What we're really here for is the police investigations. I want to start in Seattle. The discovery of Wendy Caulfield was tragic, and while Seattle certainly wasn't the most wholesome city in the United States, to find the body of a murdered young teenage girl was rare. The police just didn't pick up her body and leave like, oh, well, just another runaway. She should have known better, but took the time to process the scene, which ultimately led to the discovery of three other women and girls, both white and black. At this point, it didn't take a rocket scientist to figure out a serial killer was at work, especially when the remains of other victims were found shortly after in the same general location. Even after the police had searched some of those areas, which meant that the killer had returned. This wasn't just a serial killer. This was a serial killer who was killing frequently with little rest between victims. Now, with all those episodes of Criminal Minds we've all watched, we know that killers enjoy a bit of, you know, rest between their victims too savor what they have done before they start hunting or killing again. When bodies start appearing nearly weekly, it's been said that the killer is escalating, which is not really the case in Seattle in the 1980s. Bodies were being discovered regularly over the course of several years. This was crazy insane. Not only had the police come to the conclusion that there was a serial killer at work, but the press did as well. Newspapers and TV stations sent so many reporters to the Green River crime scenes that investigators begged the reporters to be careful so they wouldn't inadvertently trip over an undiscovered body. No joke. The news made the front paper of not only the local papers, but the national newspapers as well, and was the first story in the local nightly news, and the national news as well. Now, during my research, I did find a Seattle Times article from 2003 that pretty much slammed King County for not recognizing what they had quick enough and for following leads that didn't go anywhere. According to the article, a task force should have immediately been set up and investigators should have known just by the first four victims this killer would escalate. 
The article also berated the police for investigating a taxi driver for a few months when they thought he was the killer. Hindsight, people. I'm about to talk about the task force, but you just do not, not investigate someone. Most leads and tips lead investigators to not guilty suspects, but the right lead and tip can lead investigators to the right person. You won't know until you actually, you know, investigate. Within months of the first discoveries, the King County Sheriff's Office did form the Green River Task Force and brought in investigators and officers from different counties and cities to assist. A second task force was set up in January 1984 after the first had disbanded. When more bodies were discovered, King County reached out to the FBI and requested profilers. The Green River Task Force, GRTF, received the best of the best in the 1980s. FBI profiler John Douglas, the myth, the man, the legend. He took time out of his hectic schedule to assist and form a profile. Even Douglas could see the craziness of what was going on in Seattle. Side note. During this time, uh, John Douglas was flying all over the U.S. and Canada, assisting locals with serial killings and other messed up homicides. Uh, this is when profiling really began to, um, to get into the limelight. So Douglas was helping out with an investigation in Alaska, uh, which would ult ultimately lead to the arrest of Richard Hansen, the butcher baker, uh, when he received the request from Seattle. In his book, Mindhunter, which you have to read, awesome, awesome book, Douglas admitted the case uh, would have been passed on to another agent so others on his team could get some rest, uh, some downtime. But the sheer amount of victims took precedence over resting. One evening in Seattle, Douglas told his partners that he wouldn't be joining them for dinner uh, where they normally talked about the case because he wasn't feeling well. The next morning when he didn't show up, his partners nearly broke down his hotel room door when he didn't answer and they could hear him moaning inside. Douglas was rushed to the hospital with severe viral encephalitis that put him in a coma for a week. And this would inspire the scene in the Netflix show Mindhunter uh, when Ford has an anxiety attack after talking to Ed Kempler. So here's the thing. It's never okay to ignore your body's need for rest. Okay, you got to take care of yourself before you can take care of anyone else. But I give Douglas credit for trying to power through for the Green River victims. Back to the investigation. In 1982, Douglas and his team offered a pretty broad profile on the killer based on crime scene photos alone. It was the average mid-20s to mid-30s, white male, drove, drove older yet dependable cars, low self-esteem, average to slightly above average, average intelligence, has normal encounters with sex workers despite the murders. In 1984, Douglas revised the profile when more victims were discovered. Sad to say, the more victims there are, the more detailed the profile will be. Douglas added that the killer had parental discord with his parents, and while he had no aversion to women, 
He, quote, the killer has felt that he has been burned or lied to and fooled by women one too many times. In his way of thinking, women are no good and cannot be trusted. He feels women will prostitute themselves for whatever reason. And when he sees women openly prostituting themselves, this makes his blood boil. He seeks prostitutes because he is not the type of individual who can hustle women in a bar, the profile says. It goes on to say, he does not have any fancy line of speech as he is basically shy and has very strong personal feelings of inadequacy. Having sex with those victims may be the initial aim of the subject, but when the conversation turns to pay for play, this causes flashbacks in his memory to uncomfortable times he has had in the past with women. These memories are not pleasant. The straightforwardness of the prostitute is very threatening to him. They demonstrate too much power and control over him because of his personal feelings towards women and the action of prostitutes that will make it mentally comfortable for him to kill them. It is believed, the profile concluded, that possibly the subject is killing because the victims are not listening to his preaching regarding their activities or making fun of him or laughing at him. He is an angry individual who demonstrates power over his victim and enjoys the publicity he is receiving. Well, profiling is not an absolute science. The theory about the killer and his views of sex workers turned out to be freaky, scary accurate. The GRTF pulled out all the stops for this investigation. They brought in a computer, which was fancy schmancy for the 1980s, to archive and cross-reference all the thousands of tips coming in and even employed the knowledge of another Washington serial killer, Ted Bundy. In 1984, two of the GRTF investigators took a trip to Florida where Bundy was on death row to ask the dickhead what his thoughts were on GRK. Bundy was obviously more about himself than wanting to save innocent women, but he offered a clue that came directly out of his own playbook though he never actually admitted it. He told the investigators that GRK was probably revisiting the bodies to, well, have sex with them post-mortem. Bundy, the asswipe, advised the police to stake out the crime scene the next time they found a body because he was assured that the killer would return. Unfortunately, they never got the opportunity to do this. In 1988, the King County Sheriff's Office and local news broadcasters put on a telethon-like program called Manhunt Live, A Chance to End the Nightmare, and was hosted by Patrick Duffy, whose own parents had also been murdered. The two-hour program featured timelines, select crime scene details, and even an account from a young sex worker who survived one of the GRK assaults. Over 60,000 people called the tip line within the span of five hours. They didn't just offer tips on GRK, but other murders across the U.S. and Canada as well. During the investigations, there was some pushback from the public and sex workers. 
Of course there would be. There was a maniac out there killing girls and women, and the GRTF had been investigating for years with no arrests. I don't blame the public or sex workers at all for demanding answers. I feel the most for sex workers because this was not only their livelihood, but this was their lives at stake. They were trying to earn a living and there was a monster out there targeting them. The public, like they should, demanded answers and more clarity into the investigations. We pay you all this money for the task force. We demand answers. Their concerns did not fall on deaf ears. Senior members of the GRTF regularly spoke with the press and public about the case. Of course, they didn't give away all information about the crimes or investigation. And cops regularly patrolled the SeaTac Strip and other areas, looking out for sex workers and keeping their eyes open for anything kinky. They didn't want to see anything happen to these girls or women either. These patrols would eventually lead to the killer. You should also know there were two camps at this time. Those who sympathized with sex workers and actually protested with them outside the King County Courthouse, and those who thought that the women had it coming. In the city of Seattle, more people began to see sex workers as professionals and not as criminals. So in Seattle, there was a lot of investigation going on. Lots of stuff on the local and national night nightly news and a town living in fear. In South Central LA, there was a town living in fear, but police investigations never really made the news. That does sound a bit harsh, and it is. Did the LAPD investigate the string of homicides going on in South Central LA in the 1980s? Yes. In fact, they investigated lots and lots of homicides occurring in South Central at the time. This was gangland, and the LAPD were woefully understaffed for what was going on at the time. LAPD were not only investigating the murders we are concentrating on in this episode, but they were also tracking down another serial killer dubbed the Southside Slayer, who was more than likely a mythical killer made up to make sense of all the murders of sex workers in South Central. In reality, there were six serial offenders hunting in South Central because there were plenty of high-risk victims to choose from. Also, there were many investigators who were good cops. They were brilliant investigators, but they just had too much on their plates to actually get to the bottom of all these murders. They had too much going on and lacked the proper investigative tools the higher-ups reserved for more affluent areas of L.A. So this story starts with 29-year-old Deborah Jackson. In August 1985, Deborah was working as a cocktail waitress and was having some issues with her roommate. Her roommate didn't like that Deborah was using cocaine and was late paying some of her bills. The two agreed Deborah would move out, but... Deborah never came back for her belongings. She was found in an alley on August 10th, murdered by two 25 caliber gunshots to her chest. Rather than look for a sexual offender, the police zeroed in on Deborah's roommate because the two had had a falling out, and when that didn't pan out, they chalked the murder up to a drug hit. 
Deborah's murder didn't make the evening news. It never made the evening news, even though the national spotlight was on L.A. that year. Nearly every night, the national news reported on a series of murders and assaults in L.A. and San Francisco. They called the offender the Night Stalker. In September 1985, the LAPD did host a small press conference asking for the public's health in a series of unsolved homicides stretching back to 1983, where South Central sex workers were sexually assaulted and stabbed, the Southside Slayer. The South Central community was horrified. Why hadn't the police told them sooner there was a serial killer in their community? Why hadn't these victims received the same attention as those killed by Richard Ramirez? Local female activists started to protest the police and use their own contacts in order to help find the offender. But these activists were sneered at by the police and their tips were normally disregarded. Many of these women were threatened with rape or murder. Despite the threats, some of them launched the group Black Coalition fighting back serial murders and pressured the LA City Council to offer a reward to help find the Southside Slayer. They wouldn't find out there was another killer in their community until 20 years later. The police and press were not the only ones to fell these victims, but South Central churches did as well. While these churches were normally encouraging peace among gangs, they turned their backs on sex workers who were assaulted or killed because they didn't want to look like they were supporting their, quote, lifestyles. These church groups, sadly to say, also included the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the same group that Dr. King once led. And what about the FBI? An L.A. city councilman did reach out to the FBI and request their help to find the Southside Slayer. But this request hacked off the LAPD, who frankly said they didn't need the help from the FBI. By the time Henrietta Wright was killed in August 1986 by a .25 caliber gun, the residents of South Central highly distrusted the police and believed LAPD used gang violence as an excuse to harass black law-abiding citizens. As we talked about in the last episode, Black LA residents and the LAPD already had a rocky relationship and the new crackdown on gang violence didn't improve relations. To give the LAPD some credit, in 1986, the task force set up to investigate the Southside Slayer numbered 45 officers and they were given orders to investigate any murdered females dumped in alleys in South Central. That's how they linked Deborah Jackson's murder to Henrietta Wright's. The ballistics matched each other. The ballistics would also match the other Grim Sleeper murder victims discovered in the 1980s. However, while the task force numbered 45 in 1986, both the LAPD and LA Sheriff's Department decreased the amount of officers to around 20 in 1987. While the offender was still killing and victims were being discovered in alleys. This was mainly done in preparation of Pope John Paul's visit to LA that year. Now, I'm not saying that the Pope didn't need protecting, but I have a feeling 
even the Pope would have wondered why he was more important than the lives of innocent women. I should also tell you, about this time, all these murders were known within police circles as the Strawberry Murders. That seems kind of sweet, you may be thinking. Not really. A strawberry was a derogatory term used to describe sex workers who traded services for drugs. On a few occasions, both uniformed officers and investigators labeled the crimes as NHI, no humans involved, which not only obviously dehumanized these women, but lumped them into the same category as the offender. Some officers believed the killer was doing the community a service and weeding out crack-addicted sex workers. While there were law enforcement officers who wanted the offender off the streets, there were others who were quietly and not so quietly rooting for the killer to take care of business. Whereas in Seattle, most law enforcement were properly horrified and felt the pressure to catch the killer. In January 1988, a woman named Karen Toshima and her boyfriend were in an affluent area of West Los Angeles when she was shot and killed during a gang shootout. Uh, gang violence didn't happen much in this area that Karen was in, and her murder flashed across both the local and national news. The city council put out a $25,000 reward for information leading to the arrest of her killer, and police patrols tripled in the West LA neighborhood. What was being done in South Central where more people died from gang violence than any other area in LA? Nothing, aside from a new directive called Operation Hammer, uh, where police stopped and questioned every suspected gang member they saw. But many of these individuals, they weren't gang members. They were normal people from the neighborhood. Also, uh, Lucretia Jefferson was shot and killed by a 25 caliber pistol and dumped in an alley hours before Karen Toshima was killed. Lucretia's murder wouldn't make the news for another 20 years. This went on until one evening in November 1988 when the killer made a huge mistake. Anitra Washington planned to spend the evening out and she was walking to a friend's house when a man in orange pinto pulled up and offered her a ride. She waved him off at first, but got into the car after he insisted. Later, she told the police his mood changed. And after she questioned him about driving the wrong way, the man shot her in the chest. When Anitra woke up, the man was raping her and took pictures of her with a Polaroid camera. Perhaps he thought she was dead when he dumped her in an alley, but Anitra was still alive and strong enough to make it to her friend's house where she was discovered and rushed to the hospital. Anitra gave the police a description of the man and his car, and the bullets in her chest matched the 25 caliber bullets found in other victims. This could have been a major break in the case, but according to journalists, victim advocates, and multiple documentaries, the police never really followed up on the evidence. Why? 
It could be because Anitra had cocaine in her system. Later, Anitra would claim police treated her like a criminal and a, quote, black crackhead hooker. After Anitra survived her attack, the 25 caliber killings suddenly stopped. In Anitra's case, and the cases of the murder victims, went cold. The task force was disbanded, and the public and the families of the victims remained clueless there was a serial killer at large. In Seattle, the Green River murders seemed to slow, and then stopped too by the late 1980s. However, the task force, though smaller in size, remained active, and the murders still made the news. The public and families knew a killer was at large. So what happened? DNA happened. In the 1980s, DNA was still in its infancy, and law enforcement really didn't use it yet. Forward-thinking investigators still took samples of bodily fluid from victims in the hope that it could be used as evidence one day. This was done in both the South Central and Seattle murders. In Seattle, saliva samples were collected from suspects. While there are suspects in South Central, samples weren't collected. In 2001, the GRTF felt comfortable enough to use the DNA samples they had taken from the Green River victims and compare them to the DNA samples taken from the suspects. One was a hit. In 1983, a Seattle area man by the name of Gary Ridgway became a suspect in the Green River murders because of his prior arrest for soliciting a sex worker. In 1987, Police took both hair and saliva samples from Ridgeway, though they could not find any hard evidence he had anything to do with the murders. However, that 1987 sample matched offender DNA left behind on a victim. Ridgeway was arrested and, in exchange for a life without parole rather than death penalty deal, Ridgeway confessed to 48 murders and led police to the remains of previously undiscovered victims. Ridgeway would go on to claim to have murdered over 70 women. Why sex workers? Because he hated them and was a bit of a religious fanatic who believed sex workers were sinners and trash. Ridgeway grew up in a two-parent home, but his mother was the dominant force in his life. When Ridgway was serving in the Navy, he got an STD from a sex worker overseas, which developed into his hate for sex workers. Ridgway was of average intelligence and drove late model, well-maintained vehicles. He was not a ladies' man. The FBI profile was pretty much spot on. The arrest and conviction of Ridgway made global news. And the people of Seattle and the families of the victims had answers to what happened to the women and girls taken by the Green River Killer. Ridgeway is still alive and serving his time in a Washington state prison. In LA, more women and girls were murdered. In 2002, the body of 15-year-old Princess Bertome was found strangled and beaten in an alley in South Central. The following year, the body of Valerie McCorvey was found strangled and sexually assaulted in another alley. At first glance, 
These two murders seem to have little in common with the 25 caliber murders in the 1980s until investigators matched offender DNA from those two murders to the murder of Mary Lau in 1987. The killer was back, and the police did not inform the public or form a task force. Why? Who cares about the murders going on in the poor section of town when you need to maintain a friendly image of LA and keep the more affluent citizens in LA safe? I shit you not. This was the thinking going on in LA at the time. Between mayoral races and Hollywood, no one had time for the cold cases of nine murder victims or the two newer, vic newer victims in South Central. It wasn't until 2007 after the body of Janisha Peters was found, shot and dumped in an alley, and DNA from her case was linked to the other murders, was when a task force was finally created to catch the killer. Still, the police did not inform the public. It wasn't until journalist Christine Pelisek discovered the links and outed the investigation in an article in LA Weekly that the public discovered the truth. As you can imagine, the people of South Central were beyond livid to discover not only was there a serial killer in their community, but he had been killing since the 1980s. How were they supposed to protect themselves when the police didn't warn them that, the predator, that a predator was at large? Even the families of the 1980s victims were stunned to learn their loved ones were the victims of a serial killer rather than a freak drug or gang violence. When Pelisek reached out to some LA city officials for comments on the story, she received responses ranging from outrage from some sympathetic city council members to, quote, I don't have time for that right now, from other city leaders who might have felt a little bit differently if the murders had taken place at, say, a university campus or Bel Air. To bring more attention to the case, Pelisek gave the killer the handle The Grim Sleeper for his seemingly 14-year gap in between killings. The case made some local news, but mainly in the LA Weekly where Pelisek's articles were published. A break in the case came in 2010, when investigators performed a familial DNA search and got a hit to Chris Franklin, who had been arrested in an unrelated crime. This led investigators to his father, Lonnie Franklin Jr., whose DNA was a match to the DNA left behind in the Grim Sleeper murders. In July of that year, Franklin was arrested and police searched his home where they found guns, mementos, pornographic videos of Franklin with women, and photos of over 160 women, both living and dead. A Polaroid of Anitra Washington was found as well. Police to this day are still trying to identify the women in the photographs. In May 2016, a jury found Franklin guilty of 10 murders and one attempted murder and sentenced him to death. After his trial, the task force linked him to other murders dating back to 1976. It is possible Franklin could have killed countless more. 
He was found dead in his cell in 2020 of unknown causes. So why the difference between the two cases? Why did the people and police of Seattle care so much more about the murders of sex workers in Washington more than the public and police cared about the murders of sex workers in LA? I think the obvious answers lie within history. Race relations in LA were notoriously bad and city leaders spent most of their time worrying about Hollywood and tourism. The sad fact is, the LA mayor remarked more about Lindsay Lohan's love life than the Grim Sleeper murders. It was easy to sweep these murders under the carpet, whereas in Seattle, the police didn't need to worry about celebrity news and bodies were being discovered at a horrifyingly fast rate. Do I blame the LAPD for a somewhat sloppy investigation? Sure, but I blame the public and press too. We are still in a time of missing white woman syndrome and a murdered white woman is going to make the news more than a murdered black, Latina, indigenous, or any other marginalized woman out there. This is not me pointing my finger, calling people racists, but me imploring everyone to open their eyes and see victims as victims. Everyone deserves justice. It doesn't matter who the victim is, what they look like, what part of the city they hail from, or what they do for a living. No one deserves the fate the victims of Ridgeway or Franklin met. As for the investigations, I don't know what more the GRTF could have done. They flooded the SeaTac strip with patrols, investigated thousands of leads, investigated dozens of suspects, including Ridgeway himself, and even aired a primetime special hosted by Patrick Duffy, for God's sakes. While I'm sure some law enforcement could have cared less about the deaths of sex workers and runaways, the GRTF and the city of Seattle still did their jobs. In LA, I firmly believe the biases of law enforcement and city officials impacted the Grim Sleeper investigation. Even Chris Franklin, Lonnie Franklin's son, said a police officer wanted to shake his hand and thank him for the work his father had done ridding the streets of sex workers. If they had ignored their biases, chances could have been good they found Franklin before he killed more women. The tip about the orange pinto alone could have led to Franklin if it had been properly investigated. But like I said before, hindsight is twenty twenty. This week, I want you to help find Benita D. Long. Benita was last seen on March 26, 2022 at the El Corral Motel in Tappanish, Washington. Benita is a 40-year-old indigenous woman. She's five foot three, 130 pounds, short black hair, and brown eyes. Benita has tattoos on her right and left knuckles and her right forearm. She has a scar on her chin and burn scars on both of her legs. I will post a picture of Benita on Instagram. If you have seen Benita or have information about her whereabouts, please contact the Yakima Police Department at 
865-2933. If you feel uncomfortable going to the police, you can contact me at thehistorybehindacrime at gmail.com or on Instagram at thehistorybehindacrime. Someone out there knows something. You may not, but you may know people in Washington who do. Share Benita's story with them. Well, guys, that wraps up this episode. I'll try to get back to a, I don't know, a somewhat normal episode schedule, but I make no promises. I do have some spooky treats in store for you in, in celebration of my favorite time of year. But until then, do me a favor. Take care of yourselves and take care of each other. Later, y'all. <laughs>